In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about those things which go horribly wrong. If you're a regular listener, you know that we want this podcast to be an escape from real life. But there are some issues which demand a response. Issues which can no longer tolerate silence. I want to affirm that the No Sleep Podcast always has and always will welcome people of color on our team. But I do understand it can appear that our team is disproportionately white. We have never turned away anyone based on the color of their skin. Be they voice actors, writers, or illustrators, we gladly collaborate with all people who want to share their talent in creating fictional horror. But recent events have shown me me, the person ultimately responsible for this podcast, that more can be done. We are seeing continual, horrific, and entirely intolerable acts of violence against the Black community. And I want to work harder to bring people of color and Black voices to our show. That means more voice actors of color, but it also means reaching out directly to Black writers. Writers who have told us that they sometimes feel they should be writing white for the show instead of reflecting their ethnicity, race, culture, and background. Horror is a universal emotion, and when we choose to allow it to stir our minds for entertainment or distraction, it can be a positive and uniting force. We will work harder at making sure our horror community reflects the many faces of our society and we will be all the better for it when we do. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we join a man contemplating what went wrong. It can be a difficult thing to have to deal with when your idyllic life has fallen apart. So much to mull over and search your soul for. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Taus, the decline of this man's family ended so tragically. Performing this tale is Andy Cresswell. So keep a close eye on your loved ones. Pay attention to how things are going with them. Otherwise, you might find yourself in a low spirit.
Under the moonlight, the raven's feathers gleam like fresh paintwork. It watches curiously as my hands claw at the ground. I am getting nowhere. A single tear spills down my cheek, and the cool breeze accentuates its path, but it never makes it to the earth beneath. I only have myself to blame. The bird lifts its head, and its beady eyes offer no consolation for my guilt. I sit back on the damp ground and reflect on how it came to this. She used to be so good with the children. It's hard to watch them struggle and hurt in the way they do. Lucy is having nightmares again, and the words I offer do little to comfort. She's always been a worrier, asking questions that should never be on a young child's mind. Do you still love Mummy? Why do you get sad? Why does Mummy cry sometimes? It's Tom I worry about most, though. He's not talking at all. I walked in on him a few days ago and caught him crying into his pillow. On his drawing pad on the bedside table, there was a picture of the four of us holding hands and smiling. I feel helpless. Even more so sat here in the middle of the cemetery when I should be at home with the children. I bid farewell to the raven perched atop the stonework and set off home. I want her back. I want to hold her and have another go at making her happy. We used to be. The first time I saw her, I knew I wanted to be with her. Intelligent, altruistic, complex, generous, and very stubborn. My ever-so-stubborn English rose. I loved her. Our friends were shocked at how we would speak to each other at times, but I don't think they ever truly understood how comfortable we felt in each other's presence. We would joke and roast like best friends, love like adulterers, and talk all night about anything under the sun. That seems like such a long time ago now. A streetlight casts its warm glow on our house, but inside the light dwindles and it only makes it up the first three steps of the staircase. I creep up the board slowly, half expecting a loud creak and subsequent cry from Lucy, but the house remains mute. I pass the photo on the wall that portrays a lie. It's a recent one, a van on her 40th trying to smile, as though she had forgotten how. Depression had finally rooted itself. Pangs of guilt wash over me again as I run my finger over her forced smile. The makeup helps disguise the sleepless nights and taut face, but the eyes offer nothing but despondence. The isolation was unbearable, and I know that comes across as selfish, but I was trying to hold everything together. After a while, I felt the cracks appear. My work was suffering. I was snappy at Lucy and Tom, and I used to get so frustrated with Anne. On occasions, I felt so rigid with rage, I feared what might happen. Those times, I would drive to the beach and cry or scream, or both. She seemed so adamant on self-destruction. I tried, but there is only so much you can do on your own. Admittedly, I was afraid to tap into that part of her mind. It would be like trying to defuse a bomb, and if he didn't know which wires to cut, boom. She had battled waves of it over the years. 
Sometimes it would last days and sometimes weeks, but she had always managed to fight her way out in the end. It was exhausting for both of us, and I couldn't help but feel that sometimes I made it worse. I used to think that perhaps if she was with someone else, they could help her unlock the unshakable sadness that I couldn't. My patience grew thin over time, and I shamefully started to throw around desperate ultimatums, threatening to leave and to take the kids. I couldn't reach her. She would happily take the drugs but not the advice, and the pills she had started taking encouraged even more disconnect. Gently, I stroked Lucy's cheek. She looks peaceful now, and I hope some light is getting through to her dreams. I want to scoop her up and squeeze her. She kept me going through a lot of the hard times, and I feel as though I have let her down too. I peek into Tom's room and see the drawing of the four of us still sat on his table. He is curled up in a ball as though in self-protection mode, and he looks so small and vulnerable. I want to wake him up and tell him everything is going to be okay. I kiss him on the forehead and whisper I love him before moving to our room. I wanted a happy ending, back to where we used to be. I begged her countless times to see someone. I had nothing left to give at the end. The dresser that used to be packed to the brim with bottles of colorful tablets is now almost empty, apart from the ripped open envelope and letter cast aside. I have read that first line so many times now. Dear Mrs. Jones, this is to confirm your booking with psychologist Dr. Lauper on the 17th of September at 10 a.m. There is a small groan behind me, and I turn to look at my wife in bed and watch her until she settles once again. The envelope is postmarked the 4th of September, the day before I locked myself in the garage with the engine running. She never said a word about finally seeing a psychologist. Maybe she was frightened of failure. I will never forgive myself. The raven has watched me helplessly claw at my grave many times. Punishment enough, perhaps. Imagine the nightmare of being sent to prison for a long sentence, locked in a cell, shunned by society, forgotten. In this tale, shared with us by author D. Williams, we meet Brian, a man for whom a series of events have conspired to upend his life. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Addison Peacock, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Jessica McAvoy, Jesse Cornett, Jeff Clement, and Mick Wingert. So don't let prison get you down. Try to stay focused, otherwise you might end up bitter.
on television, they called me the carjack killer. They said that I strangled those men out of rage, that I was jealous of their prowess with women. The police and the FBI said that humiliating them as I murdered them gave me some kind of sexual gratification. This isn't true, but no one believes me. A few years ago, that reporter out of New York published a book about my supposed crimes. Metal, Mayhem, and Murder was the title. Stupid, but catchy. That was probably the point. Gary Howard, one of the guards here, told me all about it the day it was released. Special ordered it. One day shipping. Stayed up all night to read it. He slipped a pack of cigarettes through the bars of my cell as he said it. I don't suppose it helps that I've kept smoking since I've been in here, but it doesn't matter now. The man on death row doesn't fear cancer, and he doesn't fear more evidence against him. Gary isn't supposed to give me things like that, but he does. I guess he isn't supposed to tell me about things like the book, either. He's a little starstruck by me, I think. A little overwhelmed. Who doesn't love a good serial killer story, after all? I also think Gary is fucking pathetic, but I take what kindness I can get in this place. In the book, the reporter talked about what she called my process. All of it had to be based off police evidence, of course, since so far no one has managed to take my confession. I guess it's hard to take what I don't have to give. Nonetheless, the evidence itself paints a very clear picture. I would steal a car from the venue parking lot, she said and follow a man on his way home. At some low traffic point in the journey, I would rear-end him, force him to pull over. Jesus Christ, man, what the fuck is your problem? What the when he stepped out of his car, I would bash him over the head, repeatedly, if necessary. The instrument I used for this would vary depending on what was at hand in the stolen car. Most of the times, it was a tire iron. Once he was unconscious, I would load him back into his own car. Then I would climb into the driver's seat, tape his mouth, and drive away. I kept the tire iron with me in case I needed to use it again. Gary winked at me as he told me that. I'm not a large man. It makes sense that I would have to so thoroughly incapacitate my victims. In terms of the destination, the author speculated that I only required seclusion. Once I found it, I would unload my victim and strip him. After he was naked, I hogtied him with duct tape and then I waited for him to wake up before wrapping the rope around his throat. She says the truly disturbing part is what you did about the tape over their mouths. See, you took it off. There was tape residue on their faces, but the actual piece that had been there before was wadded up and tossed one side. She says you wanted to hear them die. It's difficult to roll a man onto his back when he's hogtied easier to leave him on his stomach. From there, it's very simple to stand above him, loop a long cord around his neck, and pull up. Let gravity and the weight of his own torso do the trick. This is especially useful when the killer is smaller and lighter than the victim. According to the reporter, the only downside was that I couldn't see their faces as they died. That was why I needed this occlusion. So I could remove the tape from their mouths and hear the noises they made as life escaped them. I would stand above them with the ends of the cord wrapped taut around my gloved hands, arms burning with the effort of lifting their weight, and listen to them choke and grunt until that last gasp before they stopped. 
This, I expect, is all true. The only exception is that I didn't do those things. It was someone else. I have always said that it was someone else, but no one believes me. The prison officials here don't allow me internet access. Perhaps I should miss it, but I don't. It is, after all, part of what got me here. I don't remember exactly what I was looking for when I found the first photos online. I was always researching serial killers in my spare time, and I don't mean the general Wikipedia bullshit. I looked deep for pictures and gore, digging for the most gruesome snippets I could find. I looked in the places on the internet where you're not supposed to look. I don't know why I did it. I suppose I just wanted to know. A curiosity that could never be satiated. The things I looked at were frightening. I even frightened myself, I think, but that didn't stop me. I don't know who posted the photos. There was no way for me to find out. There was only his username, Schechter. Already there was a stream of comments below. He responded to some of them. When one pressed how he'd gotten the pictures, he answered with only two words. From work. The photos were of a dead man. He was naked and his arms and legs were bound together behind him with duct tape. He was belly down in the mud on the side of the road. His face turned to one side. I looked at the trickle of dry brown blood that ran down his forehead. I looked at the angry red welt that encircled his throat. I looked into his dead eyes and his slack open mouth. I wanted to know who had killed him. I added my comment to the stream below. Where is this? Schechter answered quickly, naming a city not terribly far from where I lived. Every night after work, I went back to the site. Went back to the photos of the dead man in the mud. In my mind, I spoke to his killer. I asked him why he had taken the man's clothes off. Asked him how he had chosen him. I asked him what it had felt like to kill him. I could summon no answer, just an odd feeling in my chest. A week later, there was a fresh set of photos on the site. Another dead man, naked and bound, dumped on the side of the road. Smaller than the first, with dark hair. He was face down in the dirt. One wide, blank eye was the only feature not obscured. Just as with the first victim, there was no rope around his neck, only the burn where one had cut into his flesh. Underneath, Schechter had already listed the location. It was closer this time. I could see the place where the man had been hit. The hair on the back of his head was matted with blood. It ran down his back, blending with the tattoos that covered his skin. At the inner edge of his shoulder blade was one of the Virgin Mary. Depicted as a statue, she bore no color except the red that flowed from her eyes and mouth. It ran down to coat her robes and pool at her bare feet. I knew that image. As a teenager, I had a poster of it on my wall. Though I had long since outgrown the metal band, I still recognized the art from Crimson Shrine's first album. It was only a hunch, but I pulled up their website. A man who had pierced that image into his skin forever would not pass up the opportunity to see the band perform. I was right. Two days earlier, they had done a show where the tattooed man now lay dead. A week and a half before, they had been in the same place as the first victim. There was another show that night. It was only two hours away. I bought a ticket. I wasn't sure that the first man had been to see Crimson Shine before his death, but I had a feeling that I couldn't ignore.
The venue was packed. 400 people were jammed inside, sweating beer and weed into the stale air. The press of bodies around me was almost unbearable, but I couldn't leave. The killer could be there. And if he was, I had to find him. Yet finding a serial killer in a crowd is no simple task. All around me, people were swearing, shouting, using elbows and knuckles to push their way closer to the stage. An overwhelming majority of them were men, and an overwhelming majority of them were average. A man with long black hair shoved past me, spilling his beer. It sloshed down my arm, warm and weakened. Sorry, dude. <laughs> he laughed, clapping me on the shoulder. His hand was hot, his eyes glazed with the sheen of drugs and alcohol. No problem. <laughs> he laughed again and pushed further forward into the crowd. A hush fell as the opening band stepped out. Two men and two women. The largest man, his broad shoulders cut free of the confines of sleeves, took a seat behind the drum kit. The other three took guitars from their stands. One of the women stepped up to the microphone. A gray tattoo flared across her chest from beneath her tank top. The wings of some unseen creature spread from clavicle to clavicle. Hello! The crowd erupted in cheers at her shout. She waited until they died down to continue. I'm Adelaide, and we are... The shout came from somewhere near the stage. It sounded like the man who had bumped into me. A stunned quiet <laughs> fell over the crowd, but Adelaide only laughed. How about instead I just buy you a beer at the end of the set? Fuck yeah! She flashed him a thumbs up. There was a yellow bracelet on her wrist. Not tits, but still pretty good. The crowd cheered again. Louder this time. She shouted over their glee. Thank you! I'm Adelaide and we are Bitter Waters! The music slammed into being like heat lightning. And her voice... Her voice was the voice of God. It was sex and death, rage and love. I had never heard anything like it. I knew I should have been searching. I should have been looking for the killer in the crowd, but... All I could see was her. All I could feel was her pounding in my skull, burning in my blood. All around me, people were dancing, slamming into each other, flailing their arms and banging their heads, but I could barely move. I was transfixed. When the final echo of their last chord faded, she screamed across the crowd again. Thank you, and God be at your table. The mass of people filtered back, heading to the bar. I followed suit, drank a whiskey, and waited. Adelaide and the other girl came from behind the stage a few minutes later. They headed to the side, toward a card table covered in a banner emblazoned with the band's name. I cut up to them as they pulled cardboard boxes of merchandise out from beneath. Hey, do you need some help? Adelaide looked up as she lifted a tray of CDs and cassettes from a box. We were eye to eye. My heart stuttered in my chest. No, but we appreciate the offer, right, Mary? She nudged the other girl. I saw that what I'd thought was a yellow bracelet was actually a bandana, intricately tied around her wrist. Miri rolled her eyes. Right. I, uh, I really liked your show. People were pushing past me, making their way back to the stage. Adelaide was safe behind her table. She smiled. Thanks. 
Her eyes flicked over the crowd that moved behind me. On stage, she had been all-powerful. Now she seemed nervous, fidgeting with that yellow bandana. Are those angel wings? I hadn't meant to ask it. Her eyes came to mine again and she stilled. I felt for the first time that she was actually looking at me. No. She touched one wing of the tattoo on her chest. It's the winged victory of Samothrace. Her answer didn't call any particular image to mind. I like it. I picked up a CD from the tray. Can I buy one of these? Sure thing. It's twelve bucks. I got my wallet, looked for exact change. It was difficult to focus. She was tying her hair into a bun, and all I wanted to do was watch. I held the money out, and Miri took it. Next to her, Adelaide was fidgeting again. Glad you liked the show. Hey, Miri, I'm going out to smoke, okay? Whatever, Addie. Miri's mouth was set in a thin line. Adelaide looked at me once more. It was nice to meet you. Brian. It was nice to meet you, Brian. She held out a hand to shake. Her fingertips were cold against my skin. I listened to the album on my drive home. I turned it up as loud as I could. Goose flesh stood out of my arms. Her melodies and her voice seemed to reach inside me with cold fingers, changing something fundamental within. When I pulled into the parking lot of my apartment complex, I used my phone to look up the winged victory of Samothrace. It was a statue of a goddess standing firm on the prow of a ship, her robes blown by the wind. Her head and her arms were missing, lost to time. I tried to imagine what she must have looked like when she was still complete. All I could see was Adelaide. I dreamed of her that night. I dreamed of kissing the goddess nestled between her breasts, of tasting the salt on her skin. I ran my hands through the silken fall of her ash-blonde hair. A single strand came away in my grasp and I knew it belonged to me. It was a piece of her that would be mine forever. I wanted more. There was no update to the website the next day. No new victim. I had been wrong. And yet I couldn't bring myself to regret the trip I'd made. A week passed with no word from Schechter on the site until... Took a while to find this one. More photos. The man was bound just like the others, but his flesh was beginning to slip. His body was bloated, torn raw by the activity of carrion creatures. Another commenter estimated he'd probably been dead since the Saturday before. It was the same day I'd gone to the concert. The location Schechter posted matched where it had been. The man's face was obscured by his long black hair. Crimson Shine was still touring. Bitter Waters was still with them. Their next show was a full day's drive away. I called work and told them I probably wouldn't be in the next day. I told them I had the flu. Then I got in my car and drove. This venue was bigger. It was packed like before, but industrial air conditioners kept the Texas heat at bay. I searched the crowd intently. Now I knew there was a killer among them. I could find him. I could ask him everything I wanted to know. I could ask him if killing those men had felt good. I decided that I would stay at the bar while Adelaide played. I didn't want to be distracted. I heard her shout and the music began. The voice pulled at me. The sirens sang. 
I hummed along but resisted the call to go see her, to look at her, the victory on the prow of that stage. I knew if I did that, I would be done. Instead, I watched the people as they drifted in and out of the doorways. I tried to remember faces from the last performance. No one stuck out. No one looked familiar. Bitter Waters finished their last song. Over the fading echo, Adelaide cried out. God be at your table! I watched as more people pressed toward the bar around me. I didn't recognize any of them. They filtered past me minute after minute, strangers all. <laughs> I heard Adelaide laugh behind me. The sound set my skin alight. I turned. She and Miri were at their booth. A man stood across from them, reaching over the table. He ran a hand through Adelaide's hair, caressed her arm. His fingertips brushed across her tattoo, and she slapped his hand away playfully. She laughed again. Now that I knew the cause of it, it set my teeth on edge. She shooed him away, and he went. I walked over. Was he bothering you? Very much so. No, just a little drunk and having some fun. No harm. But thank you for asking. A flame of rage flickered to life inside of me at her answer. He touched her like that, and she called it fun? It was repulsive. But she had tolerated his advances. She'd even liked it. Do you want to buy something? My nails dug into the flesh of my palm. I already bought your CD the other day. She tilted her head at me. Brian? The rage died suddenly, quenched by the sound of my name in her voice. Yeah. Oh, wow. She reached over the table and touched my arm with her cold fingers. It sent a shiver across my skin. How are you? What are you doing so far from home? I, uh... I was just traveling for work. I, I, I thought I would come see you again. That's so cool. She seemed uncomfortable. She fidgeted and rubbed her arm with the palm of her hand. The motion drew my eyes down to the angry red marks in the crook of her elbow. With a swift motion, she crossed her arms over her chest, cutting herself off. I'm sorry, I was just looking at your bandana. It's different. It was true. The yellow bandana bracelet had been exchanged for a purple one. Yeah, I like to change it every show. Kind of a tradition. She turned suddenly. Can you watch the table, Mary? I need a smoke. Mary's face fell in a way that I understood now. Whatever, Addie. Do what you gotta do. Adelaide slid around the table and passed me, twisting her hair up into a bun as she went. Nice to see you again, Brian. She didn't look at me as she said it. Miri gave me a doleful stare. You might as well go enjoy the rest of the show. She's not coming back tonight. She tapped the soft flesh inside her elbow. She's sick. My stomach roiled. I pictured a needle in Adelaide's arm. I imagined those red punctures in her perfect skin, ulcerating with the filth of someone else's blood. All the damage it could do, how stupid it was. My hands were shaking. Miri's voice filtered in through my rage. We'll be in Tulsa tomorrow. It's only four hours away. Maybe work will take you there, too. Her tone told me she knew I had lied. I didn't care. 
I slept in my car that night. I dreamed that Adelaide was with me. I dreamed that I could reach inside of her and take out all of the pieces that made her sick, that made her weak. I could find that perfect piece of her that had taken root in my mind and bring it up to the light. I could make her better. I could make her mine. The killer stood outside of the car looking in at us. I couldn't see his face. What does it feel like? His voice was both strange and familiar. I answered him in the dream. This isn't about her. This isn't about her. This is about you. He laughed. (laughs) More pictures were up on the website the next day. Another man choked in the dust. I didn't even have to look at the location that Schechter had posted to know he had been at the show. I had seen him, I was sure of it. Just like I had seen the killer. I followed her to Tulsa then Wichita, then Kansas City. The killer followed too. Three cities and three more men. I slept in my car, cleaned up in bathrooms as best I could. At some point, my boss called and told me I was fired. I told her she could go fuck herself. The thrill I had once gotten from looking at the photos of the dead began to fade. It was no longer enough, but the curiosity persisted. I needed to find him. I needed him to tell me everything. Why kill so many? What did it feel like? I had to know. It was growing harder and harder to control my frustration. Every night I dreamt of the killer and of Adelaide. The next show was different. A storm threatened outside. The soft rumble of thunder growing in the distance. Adelaide grabbed the microphone. The crowd cheered as they always had. She winked at me and pointed up there. The storm broke. An echoing crack of thunder shook the room. Adelaide laughed as though she had planned it. (laughs) We are bitter waters. The thunder rolled with their music. The slamming staccato of the rain on the roof was another drum added to the percussion. The sheen of sweat that glistened on her arms and over her tattoo was like the promise of peace that would come after the storm. It was rapturous. Later at the merchandise table, she couldn't stop smiling. I told her the performance had been amazing. God, it felt so good. (laughs) Like sex, but better. Fuck, I need a cigarette. The electricity on my skin faded into disgust. I knew what she meant. But then... Come outside with me, Brian. I want to talk to you. She took me by the shoulder and led me out the back. The rain had slowed, softened to a gentle noise. Much to my surprise, she did just what she said she would. She pulled a pack of cigarettes from her back pocket and lit one. She inhaled deeply and sighed the smoke out into the night. Why have you been following me? The question caught me off guard. The first thought that came into my head, this isn't about you. But I couldn't tell her the truth. I... I don't know. 
Do you think you love me? I thought of the dreams, of how her music pounded through me like blood, of how I wanted her in ways too horrific to describe. Was it love? It didn't feel like any love I had ever known. It felt like something else, something I couldn't name. I wondered suddenly if the killer felt this way about her too. I had thought that he was following Crimson Shrine, but what if he was following Adelaide? What if he was following her just like I was? Brian? No, I don't think so. That's good. That's all I wanted to know. Why? She took another drag on the cigarette. Shrugged, but didn't answer. Adelaide, has... Has someone else been following you? No. Something in her voice told me otherwise. Who is he? There's no one following me. My heart was racing, but the words came slow. Who the fuck is he? I don't want to talk about it. Her answer was sudden, sharp, but it wasn't angry. She sounded afraid. She knew. She knew what was going on around her. Perhaps even what was going on because of her. She had seen him. She had to have seen him. And she had done nothing about it. Only the patter of rain interrupted the long stretch of silence between us. She threw her cigarette out on the wet asphalt. It hissed. Another one came out of the pack. She lit it and then held it out to me. An apology. I let it hang for a moment, then took it. The first draw burned my lungs. I coughed and passed it back as she laughed. I was forgiven. (laughs) Perhaps she thought she was too. Not a smoker, huh? Not really. My eyes stung. I couldn't clear the feeling from my throat. Got any vices at all? The images of dead men flicked through my mind. No. Shame. It's good to have a few vices. Sometimes one vice can't even cover another. My eyes traced from the cigarette in her long fingers, past the green bandana on her wrist down to the track marks in her arm. I suddenly wanted to hit her, to grab her by the hair and smash her face into the brick wall behind her. I wanted to see the blood gush from her broken nose. She was so weak, so stupid, and so fucking wrong. But I still bought a pack of cigarettes that night. One show led into the next and the next. Men groped Adelaide and she brought them drinks for it. She continued to flirt and laugh even as she felt the death all around her. She wouldn't tell me his name. It didn't matter to her. All that mattered was the attention, no matter what price was paid. More dead men. One in Cincinnati. Another in Columbus. More photos on the website. More blank eyes and naked skin. They enraged me. I needed something. I needed to know. I dreamt of ropes and duct tape. I dreamt of Adelaide. The killer watched me through the windows of my car. The haze of stale smoke clinging to the glass. You're doing it wrong! I screamed. He only laughed.
I punched Benjamin Gray in Washington, D.C., though I didn't know his name until later. I didn't know then that he had been chosen. Bitter Waters was taking the stage. I didn't feel what I used to feel. Where once the music had filled me, it now only echoed in all the hollow places inside of me, reminding me that there was something twisting in my guts that I did not know how to satisfy. Her voice was no longer the voice of God, but I couldn't stop. Her music wove around the dead men, wove around the longing and the dreams in the tangled discordance. I had to find him. Benjamin stood next to me drinking piss yellow beer out of a plastic cup. He called up to Adelaide. Hey baby, you the singer? She was tuning her guitar and only half listening, but she still smiled for him. I am. He grabbed himself through his pants. I think I got a better use for that mouth than singing. I swung before she could say a word. She would have whored herself out for him. She would bat her lashes and buy him a drink and laugh that infuriating laugh of hers. And I couldn't stand it one more goddamn time. She was supposed to be better, supposed to be stronger, but... Instead, she was just like every other slut I had ever met. And I wasn't going to let it play out in front of my face again. Security pulled us away before we could start a riot in the crowd. No, man, I didn't want to start any shit. I just wanted to watch the show. Outside, it was dry and warm. Benjamin's eye was beginning to swell. Adelaide spoke to the security guard. Please don't call the cops. It was just an overreaction. This guy didn't do anything wrong. She put her hand on Benjamin's forearm. Her bandana was white. I lit a cigarette. The sudden temptation to grind it out on the exposed wing of victory on her chest was strong. I already knew there would be no words of defense for me. I settled for flicking the butt at her feet. She followed its path with her eyes and then looked up at me. We shared a vice now, but nothing else. Security didn't call the police. They let Benjamin back in. I felt Adelaide's eyes on my back as I walked away. The next night was the end. The crowd pressed against me, an undulating, sticky mass and lit my every nerve on fire. My knees threatened to buckle beneath me. I had dreamed of Adelaide again the night before. In the logic of the dream I could see inside her, she was full of everything that I hated. The secrets, the fear, the drugs. It was a swirling mass of gray filth. Before, there had been a light inside beneath the ugliness, but now it was gone. Where is it? I asked her. I plunged my hands into the grayness, trying to expose the light. She laughed at me. You're doing it all wrong. I turned and the killer was there watching us. He was closer than he had ever been. I could see his white eyes through the window. His breath fogged the glass. You're doing it all wrong. He forced his fingers through the gap at the top of the window. They were long and mottled. Too many joints. The flesh too soft. 
It was slipping, like the skin of the man with the long black hair had slipped after days in the mud. This isn't about me, I told him. He laughed, and Adelaide laughed, and the rage I felt was so great that I thought I would fly apart. I struck the glass, trying to crush his fingers, but they grabbed me instead. They were cold against the back of my hand. I opened my eyes and I was in the crowd again, the memory of the dream fading. Adelaide was on stage staring at me. There was no smile there, no laughter. She turned to her bandmates. I heard her over the din. I'll be right back. And then she climbed down off the stage and into the crowd. Some people tried to reach out to her, to hold on to her, but she pushed past them with elbows and closed fists. She grabbed my arm. Come on. I didn't resist as she dragged me behind her through the throng. She pulled me out a side door and into the parking lot. Suddenly we were alone. The shouting of the crowd, now only an echo muted by the sound of wind and distant traffic. What the fuck are you doing here? It was not rage in her voice or fear. It was something else. Something cold. I wanted to see you play. Fuck you. Do you have any idea how close you came to ruining everything last night? The fire in my chest made my hands shake. I wasn't about to let him talk to you like that. Why do you even care? Because I do love you. The words came out hollow, but surely that had to be it. It had to be that I loved her. What else could make me want her so much? What else could be making me hate her so much? You can't love me. You have no idea who I am. Just because you follow me around, watch me on stage. You would have bought him a drink. What? The guy, last night. You would have bought him a drink and acted like a slut to reward him for waving his dick at you, while I... I couldn't find the words to finish. Adelaide laughed once, (gasps) devoid of humor. She stepped closer to me. Then why don't you just go inside and tell the bar you're having a drink on me? If that's all you fucking wanted, if that's what all this has been about... (laughs) I hit her. She landed hard on the ground. That is not what this is about. I tried to keep my voice calm, but I was shaking so hard I could barely catch my breath. Adelaide's lip was split, dribbling blood down her chin. This is about the killer. You're a fucking psycho. I grabbed a fistful of her hair. It was softer than I had dreamed. I hauled her upright with it as she clutched my arm. I hit her again and didn't let her fall. Ah! Who is he, Adelaide? I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I yanked her head back so I could see the look in her eye. The skin over her cheekbone had parted under the force of the last blow. Her blood ran across my knuckles. It felt good. I need to find him. I need to ask him what it feels like. A thought formed in my mind, dark and slithering. It had made the desire in my chest twist and flare with anticipation. The answers I had been looking for were right at my fingertips. I could just kill you here and find out for myself. There was no one else in the parking lot. There was no one to stop me. But Adelaide only smiled at me. 
her bared teeth slick with blood. You don't have the fucking guts. I dropped her. The motion was sudden. She didn't have the strength to keep on her feet. I stepped around her and back toward the door. Behind me, I heard her spit onto the concrete. I imagined her wiping her mouth with a bandana on her wrist. I didn't remember what color it had been. It didn't matter. It was red now. The low noise she made faded into the wind. It sounded like laughter. No one stopped me as I re-entered the venue. Bitter Waters was not playing. I got the drink Adelaide had promised me. Then another, and another. When I went back out to the parking lot, she was gone. I drove home that night, stopping at a liquor store before it closed. The whiskey bottle was almost half empty by the time I stumbled into my apartment. The place smelled stale. How many days had I been gone? I paced, and I drank. There was a restless buzzing inside of me. My hands shook with it. I couldn't get the thoughts straight in my head. They raced in spirals, one over another, over another, in a dizzying whirl. How did it feel? How good did it feel? There was still blood across my knuckles. I ran a finger over the dry brown spatters, and they flaked under my touch. My head spun. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about her. I was suddenly in my bed. Adelaide was with me. She was crying, her hands bound to the bedposts with lengths of duct tape. I knelt over her. The killer was a shadow. His white eyes glowed in the darkness. Nothing separated us now. What are you doing right? There was a knife in my hand. Do it right. I did. I plunged the knife in through her tattoo. Her sternum gave away under the force, and the air left her in a silent shriek. Blood flowed out over my hand. I pulled back, my grip slipping on the wooden handle, and stabbed again. And again. I wanted to plunge my hands inside and find the perfection. No more dream logic, only the reality of the hot, slick blood coating my arms. I slashed at her shoulders and at her throat. I could turn her into the victory. Make her everything she was supposed to be. Make her mine. How does it feel? How good does it feel? I couldn't answer. Nothing had ever felt so good. Not to anyone. Beneath me, Adelaide gurgled, blood running from her mouth. It's like sex. Better. She bared her blood-slick teeth in a smile. The last breath escaped her, and I took it. My mouth clamped over hers. The last bit of everything that she was. When we parted, she was still. I sat back and breathed. The peace was instant and deep. Her blood was cooling on my skin like warm rain in the summer, the taste sweet on my lips. The killer was gone. 
replaced by silence. There was only me and the perfect thing in my bed that had been Adelaide. And then someone was knocking on my door. My head swam with the whiskey and the liquid memory of crimson. Sunlight speared through the windows in my room, blinding me. I sat and the room spun. My fingers reached out across the bed for purchase, my mind following them with thoughts of tacky blood and cold flesh. But there was only cloth. It had only been a dream. I stood unsteadily. My head pounded in time with the knocking. I stumbled forward and opened the door. What the fuck do you want? Two men stood in the doorway, gleaming badges on their belts. Ryan Mills? Yes? Police. My brain made the connection as I gave my answer. One of them was somehow behind me then, grabbing my arms, pushing me against the wall. You're under arrest for the murder of Benjamin Gray. The handcuffs clicked into place. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a... <laughs> I twisted and vomited down the leg of his nice, clean suit. You smoke, Brian? The interrogation room was lit with fluorescence. I kept my eyes down, a headache hammering behind them. Sometimes. You can smoke in here if you'd like. The taste in my mouth was sour. The sweetness of the dream long since faded. No thanks. Do you hate Benjamin Gray? I raised my eyes. The detective was clad in sweats now, a manila folder in his grasp. I don't know who that is. At the time it was true, I didn't. Maybe this will jog your memory. He slid a photograph across the table to me. It was a naked man, bound with duct tape. His mouth gaping open for one last desperate taste of air. His eye was swollen shut. I pushed the photograph away. It was like all the others, except the others didn't have the mark of my fist in their flesh. So if you didn't hate him, why'd you punch him? Because I was angry. I kept my voice calm. This was all a mistake. The detective lifted the photograph again, gazed at it with an appraising eye. Very angry, I'd say. I didn't do that to him. I didn't mention the other men. Didn't mention the killer. Okay. He shrugged sliding the page back into his manila folder. You ever get angry at anyone else? I didn't answer. You ever get angry at Adelaide? My hands were cuffed to the table. Her blood was still smeared across my knuckles. A welt was rising where her teeth had broken the skin. I don't know. You do know that you hit her, don't you? Yes. So maybe you weren't mad. 
Maybe you hit her because you were afraid. I looked up and met his eyes. They were like hers. Smug. Superior. Laughing at some joke she thought I was too stupid to understand. The calm was slipping from me. Afraid of what, exactly? She would tell someone what you had done. I didn't do anything. Do you think she's stupid? I answered before I could stop myself. Yes. So maybe you didn't think she would notice. Maybe you didn't think we would notice. The calm broke. Notice what? Men have died only at shows you've attended. His words were punctuated by the slap of photos on the table. Eleven dead men. Long hair and short, fat and thin, cord burns and duct tape, pale skin, and the Virgin Mary. I grabbed at that photograph, flung it back at him. I wasn't at the show with him. I started going after he was killed. And why is that? I saw his tattoo. It's album art for Crimson Shrine, the band that Adelaide is touring with. This guy was murdered near one of the shows, and so it was the first one. I just wanted to to find out who did it. The detective raised an eyebrow at me. I had said something he hadn't expected to hear. So you were at all these shows because you were looking for whoever had killed these men? Yes. Hmm. And you knew to go to these shows because of this man's tattoo? Yes. He nodded, looking down at the picture again. Uh-huh. He sighed through his teeth. <sighs> okay, right. So just clarify this last bit for me. How did you know where the last two victims were killed? And how did you manage to see this tattoo on David Still's back at a concert where he was fully clothed and which you supposedly did not attend? He thought he had me. I was too stupid to realize he was right. There's this website. He cut me off with an absent-minded wave. You know what? We'll clear up the details on that in just a bit. You ever smoke in your car, Brian? I... what? Yeah, sometimes. You ever get that thing where you chuck the butt out the window and then it just blows back in? No, but what does that have to do with... I actually think you have. He paused, maybe waiting for me to say something. But I had nothing to say. I didn't even know what was happening. We found a cigarette butt in the backseat of Benjamin Gray's car, but he didn't smoke. Could be it's just from somebody of his, but I don't think so. I think whoever drove Benjamin's car back to town after they bashed his head in and choked him to death had a smoke and threw the butt out the window and just didn't realize that it blew right in. He smiled wide and empty, his smug eyes locked on mine. You think the DNA on that cigarette is going to match what you spewed on my clothes this morning? I don't suppose I need to tell you that it did. And I don't suppose they need to tell you that they never found the website. What they did find, however, was the paracord bracelet. It was in the glove of my car, nestled in a bed of unpaid parking tickets and fast food napkins. It had been wound and unwound many times, each time adding a few more hairs, 
a few more traces of skin. 11 DNA samples from 11 murder victims. A perfect and portable trophy. They never found the murder weapon at any of the scenes, and now they knew why. They didn't need me to provide an explanation for it. Just as well, since I didn't have one. At least, not one they would have believed. I was framed as hardly an original defense. But I knew it was only a matter of time. I knew that another body would drop. Another washed-up metalhead shit would turn up with his pathetic life choked out, and then they would have to let me go free. It had to happen. Serial killers don't just stop. They die, or they get caught, or they go dormant for a time, but they never truly stop. They can't. Days, and then weeks, and then months passed. No more bodies. No more men disappearing from shows. It had stopped. And the only logical conclusion for a jury was that it had stopped because I had been caught. Because it was me. And the rest is not really history. The rest is merely waiting. Bitter Waters is on their farewell tour now, Gary tells me. Band's calling it quits. No hard feelings, though, according to the tabloids. Six years in the big leagues, and they're all rich enough to retire. <laughs> Think we know who they ought to be thanking for that. He winked at me. He didn't see the way my nails bit into my palm. Echoes of a knife in a long past dream. Gary likes to talk to me about Adelaide. He always has. I think it makes him feel close to me, like he's doing me a favor. Giving me isolated tastes of the woman I had been so obsessed with. Bringing me small moments of peace and happiness. I let him believe this. A month after my conviction, he told me she had checked herself into rehab. She had attempted suicide just before. Her broad-shouldered drummer kicking down the hotel bathroom door before she could shoot a massive dose of heroin into her vein. Newspapers called her my would-be twelfth victim. They published portions of the notes she had planned to leave behind. It's my fault those men died. He killed them because of me. Why did he have to choose me? Why did I choose her? That question seems important, more so now than ever, but I still can't find an answer. Six years on now and she hasn't attempted again. She's still clean. Knowing what I know now, it's not particularly surprising. I don't expect it's very difficult to kick a drug habit you never had in the first place. I still remember what she said to me. Sometimes, one vice can even cover another. I got her a gift today. Gary passed it to me with a pack of cigarettes. A black bandana intricately tied into a bracelet. It was just like the kind she used to wear. But it was too heavy, too rigid to be cloth. There was something inside. I should have known before today, but I didn't. I was stupid. I spent too much time thinking only of blood. I spent six years fantasizing about a dream and never seeing reality. Never seeing the dead men right next to her. Never seeing the arc of my cigarette before it landed at her feet. I unwrapped the bandana. There was a paracord bracelet inside. It had always been about me. And it had always been about her. Serial killers just can't stop. But some of them try. And it's always easier if someone else takes the blame. 
I was chosen because I was just like the rest of them. I was chosen because I chose her. And yet, I was different too. She saw something in me, something alien and sick. Something like what's in her. That's why I didn't die on a roadside six years ago. And why I'll never get out of this cell alive. But it doesn't matter now. I waited, even after the sentencing, even after all these years, because at least I knew that serial killers can't just stop. There always has to be another death, another body. And despite all the special treatment, I was still chosen. So I'll give you your fucking body, Adelaide. The real victim number 12. There are crossbars high enough on the cell that I can do what you want. Better this way than to let them stick a needle in my arm. Someday you'll slip up. Someday they'll catch you. And when they do, I hope they fucking kill you. God, be at your table. resolutions. Those things we steadfastly decide to do as the clock strikes midnight on January 1st, then stick with for about a week or two. Often we feel guilty when we inevitably abandon our resolutions. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jack Thackwell, it might have been better if the person in this story had given up his resolution to go walking in the woods more often. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, David Alt and Aaron Lillis. So don't feel too bad if you give up on your goals. Sometimes it'll help you avoid danger and lead you to realize that some doors are better left unopened. Have you ever been somewhere, say a museum or a hospital, and seen a door, a locked door? It may even have had a sign on it, one of those big no-entry signs. Now, if you're anything like me, you probably wondered what's behind there, or where does it go? Now, most often, if you open it and aren't immediately yelled at by an angry custodian, you'll just find a janitor's closet. Maybe even with said janitor sitting on a crate, eating his lunch with his only bucket and mop for company. However, mark my words, some doors should be left shut. Behind some doors, you will find things far worse than some lonely caretaker. Some doors are closed for a reason. It was a Wednesday. I remember that. I always went for a walk on Wednesdays. That had been my New Year's resolution to get healthy, which had really just boiled down to taking a walk once a week and cutting down on my salt, but hey, baby steps. I was proud of myself, actually. I kept my resolution going all the way until late February. 
Every Wednesday, I'd drive out to the local woods and go for a long walk through the trees. That day didn't start out any different to the others. I parked my car, put on my coat, and started off down the trail. It seemed I was alone in the forest that day. As I crunched my way through the oaks, I didn't meet a soul. I thought that was to be expected. It was a cold morning, a thin crust of frost covering the ground. Who'd want to be out on a morning like this? All in all, the walk was going just fine. There was a satisfying burn traveling up my calves into my knees, and I was still nice and warm in my winter coat. But soon, that all took a turn for the worse. After a little while, the sound of my footsteps changed, and before, they had been the familiar sound of frozen leaves crunching under my boots. Now, there was no sound. I looked down and saw something strange. The ground was cleared of any leaves or twigs. Where the earth was exposed, it looked scarred, black, with a covering of dusty green rot. I looked up and saw that it wasn't random. It was in a circle, radiating out from the base of a gigantic oak. It was like the tree was spouting poison into the earth. Something just wasn't right about that oak. It was thick enough to fit three people inside, and I couldn't think why a tree of that size hadn't been cut down already. Then I looked up again and saw why. Crooked and gnarled branches grew at disturbing angles, spreading a canopy of oily leaves. But that couldn't be. Oaks aren't evergreens. They lose their leaves in winter. Maybe someone with more sense would have left that damn thing alone, though I doubt it. The call of the void is just too strong. I took a step forward into the circle of soured earth. I walked around the trunk, following the outline of the death that had caused, looking over the bark. I stopped when I reached the other side, suddenly feeling cold. What I saw didn't fit. It was a door, old and warped, the edges of the wood barely fitting into the doorway that had been set for it. That wasn't all. There were scratches in the wood, some short and ragged, like they'd been made by human nails. Others were long, and it sunk in deep. I didn't like it one bit, but the void had a hold on me, and I was in too deep. I stumbled forwards, reaching for the door. I couldn't see a handle, but I knew, somehow, I needed to open it. My palms made contact with the molded wood. It made me feel uneasy. There was a sick feeling to it. A cold sweat broke out on my forehead, and I realized the forest had fallen silent. There were no bird calls or the creaking of trees. It seemed the woods were waiting for me to make my move. I stretched my fingers over the surface of the door until they caught on a crack, giving me leverage. I gave a tug and was amazed to find the door held. It may have looked flimsy, but it had a hidden strength to it. I tried again, this time putting my shoulders into it, feeling them quake under the strain. The door bumped free and groaned open a few inches. I laughed, seeing I'd made progress. I put my fingers into the gap I'd made to get a hold of the door and heaved with everything I had, dragging it through the dirt, scraping up a wave of rotten mud. I took a step back, panting, to examine my handiwork. I looked into the doorway I had opened and was met by darkness. 
the hollow insides of the tree. Somehow, the stillness of the forest had become more focused. It was almost painful now, the tension building up and up until it would become unbearable. What was going on? An arm erupted from the guts of the oak, sinking its fingers into the doorframe, into the bark. I leapt back with a cry, unable to tear my eyes away from the arm. It was gray, the color of a frozen body. Heavy tendons ran down from its wrists along the backs of its fingers, which ended in hooked claws. The fingers drew together, dragging their claws through the bark, gouging into the tree's flesh. I felt frozen, like the cold had risen up through the ground into my body, rooting me in place. A second hand wrapped itself around the top of the doorframe. The bark splintered and crumbled under the claws as the thing's muscles contracted and dragged a head and torso into view. A mottled gray chest with a bull-like neck carrying a skinned ram's skull. The thing's body was wrapped in heavy iron chains. Some of the links were embedded in its flesh. Where the metal rubbed against the skin, there were irritated sores. As I watched, the creature shivered, and the chains began to tremble and shake before... The links began to pop, and the creature's fetters fell to the dirt. It planted a cloven hoof down on the blackened earth. It could sense its freedom. Soon it had freed itself completely. It drew itself up to its full height and looked down on me, its eye sockets burning with green fire. You freed me, man-thing. I still couldn't find my tongue. I just stared up at the monster, thinking I should run, knowing I wouldn't. It pointed a crooked finger at me. Two hundred years I have been chained beneath this ground, little man. Name your price for my freedom, and I shall give it. It spoke in a voice of smoke and rusted iron. Its jawbone strained and gave a cracking noise. In that moment, I knew what I wanted. I want more from my life. I want to have power. I want people to know my name. It splayed its fingers and I saw, in the gray skin of its palm, burning green lines, a sigil of St. Elmo's fire. These things I gift to you, man-thing. There was a skip in my memory, and then I was standing in a darkened room. It was night outside. I saw streetlight coming in through an uncovered window. How could that be? I was in the forest just a moment ago, and I had some kind of psychotic break. Then I looked down. I was standing beside a bed. Blood was soaking into the sheets and torn coverlet. Oh, God. I recoiled backwards against something hard when I saw them. A man and a woman, their faces destroyed, their cheeks and noses flayed, their eyes gouged out, and in some places their bones and cartilage had been exposed. Their torsos were a mess of stab wounds, so many, in fact, that the only way I could tell which was the man and which was the woman was from her long black hair. I felt my stomach heave and I dropped to the floor, into the blood that had spilled off the mattress. It was only when my knuckles made contact with the wood that I realized my hand was clenched around something. 
I straightened up and saw, in the light from the street, a long-bladed hunting knife. My face, gaunt and haggard with a scraggy beard and huge bags under my eyes, was reflected in the gore-covered steel. Fuck! I hurled it across the room where it bounced off the wall and stuck into the floor. Two points of burning green fire appeared in the darkness beside me. I have granted your wish, man-thing. I jumped and scuttled away from it on my hands and knees, backing myself up against a wall. No, this isn't what I wanted. I didn't ask for this. The boards groaned as the thing clomped forward through the blood. It towered over me, its eyes crackling in the darkened room. Oh, but you did, my imperfect savior. You have power, the power of fear in the hearts of men. Your name will be spoken for decades to come in infamy. The black-hearted butcher, I have seen them call you. No, it can't be this way. I wanted something different. Its jawbone dropped open in a grin and it stretched out an arm, pointing through the apartment to the front door. Too late, man-thing. You're all out of time. Hello? Hello? It's the police. We've gotten a noise complaint. I gave myself up. What else was there to do? They led me out of the building, handcuffed and covered in blood. Two years, they said I'd been at it. Fifty people slashed to death as they slept. I wasn't thinking about that as they led me away, though. No. All I could think was, if that was what the creature would do to me, the one who freed it from its prison, what would it do to the rest of the world? If you work in a bustling metropolis that serves as a tourist hotspot, it's understandable that you might want to take your breaks in an out-of-the-way place. It's even more understandable if your job involves entertaining said tourists. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, we meet a man who takes lunch in a secluded spot with the entertainers who populate the New York streets. Performing this tale is Dan Zapula. So pay attention, because maybe some of those people keep out of the public eye for a reason. A reason that might lead you to warn people to avoid the costumed characters in Times Square. If you've been to Times Square, you've likely seen the costumed characters that wave and pose with tourists for tips. Some have made headlines for becoming aggressive when not paid. Others have been accused of getting a little too friendly 
with those gloved hands. Elmo's, Mickey's, Minnie's, Spider-Men, and last but not least, Hello Kitty's, can be found roaming the streets. I'd always rush past them, having no interest in any interaction. My office was located in the heart of it, and despite dodging them on the street, I'd often see them during my lunch break. At lunch, I frequented the last of a defunct fast food chain that attracted virtually no tourists due to its backstreet location away from the congested avenues. I'd slip off the mess of 43rd and quickly turn into that dumpster-filled side street, where halfway down the block I had reached the small lunch spot. I'd order my fried chicken sandwich, fries, and soda, and sit in a dimly lit booth installed decades earlier, and read the news while forcing down the mediocre meal in peace. The low-key spot seemed to attract the other locals in need of privacy and quiet, as well as those costumed characters. Each day I went there, it was just me and a few of the street performers. Fuzzy Elmos with spiky red fur or Disney knockoff animals chowing down their meals with their foam heads sitting beside them on their tables or in their booths. It was comical at first, but became a bit depressing as the weeks passed. I'd see the tired, baggy eyes and sweaty black hair plastered to the damp foreheads of folks just trying to earn an honest living or support families back home. I had been working in the area for a few months when I slipped into the place and saw a ratty-looking Hello Kitty who kept their mask on for the entire duration of my meal. As usual, the place was filled with comically decapitated mascots lining the wall booths. Their joyless faces regarded their sad chicken sandwiches before proceeding to shovel them down, as did I. But that one Hello Kitty just sat there. A cute oversized foam mask still balanced on their white shoulders. I ate my ranch-slathered cut of fried chicken in silence, but I couldn't help but keep looking over to that fully costumed character. I reasoned they were likely napping, but abandoned that thought when I rose to fetch condiments for my bland meal. That large head rotated slightly to follow me. I began feeling very uncomfortable from being stared at while trying to eat, and I made the unfortunate mistake of confronting them. Is there a problem? A few of the other customers glanced over, then looked back to their colorless meals. That cartoonish cat head just stared at me, and then twitched. A chill climbed my neck as I began to notice some peculiar details about their costume. First off were the arms. They appeared to be padded tubes of white foam that should normally fit loosely, but I could see the crinkle in the crook of the bent elbows, tight and small as if the material was much thinner than expected. It looked like spandex, snug and stretched against the skin on an impossibly uniform tubular arm. Of course, this made absolutely no sense unless their arms were four inches in diameter the entire course of their length. But the more I stared, the more peculiar details I noticed. I swore I could see the faint bump of a winding vein running down the forearm leading to the gloved hands. 
The large gloves appeared to be felt and housed only four bulbous fingers. When the fat digits clenched slightly, I could make out the lines of the knuckles. They jittered nervously as if aware I had noticed something was off. I felt a sinking feeling in my guts as I looked at the blank, black stare of those large eyes. The eyes caught the light like fresh paint, glistening wet and seemingly alive. At the edge of the fabric that encircled their perimeter, I observed what appeared to be tattered edges. I felt a sinking in my stomach as I realized that the large eyes were visible through holes cut out of the mask not part of it. On the side of that round, white head, a jaw muscle visibly flexed as it clenched. The concealed face beneath it seemed to be the same size and shape of that mask, with only millimeters of fabric concealing it. I felt the need to leave. My heart pounded as I stood and made my way to the exit, which was past it. The closer I got, the more I smelled a foul stench that seemed to emanate from the costumed character. It was septic and organic, like a neglected homeless person, but acrider. That big, ovoid head swiveled slowly to follow my footfalls on the soda-sticky tile floor as I quickly pushed through the swinging glass door and out into the alleyway. I rounded the few blocks back to my office and spent the rest of the workday trying hard to get my mind off of that creepy encounter. I decided to avoid that place like the plague and hoped I'd never see that disturbing mascot again. But I would. A few weeks later, I left work late after a tight deadline the boss had dropped on me in a show of authority. I took the elevator down and waved to the doorman on my way out into the neon glow of the city. When I turned down the same alley I always took to bypass the mess of tourists, my heart stalled and my feet stopped dead in their tracks. That strange costumed character was standing in the middle of the heavily littered street, unmoving. Those big eyes caught the light watery and black like the eyes of a cow. The thick, gloved fingers twitched at each side of the stained body in nervous anticipation. I felt sick to my stomach, realizing that they were blocking the path. Something about them filled me with an indescribable dread that howled in my bones. It screamed warnings into my primordial brain and I had no intention of discovering why. I quickly turned around and ran back out onto the crowded sidewalk, where an unending queue of tourists were ooing and eyeing at the standard fare. I elicited a few angered looks, a shove or two, and various insults as I pushed through the thick crowd, eager to get a good distance from that alley and the unsettling character within it. When I looked back, my heart stumbled and every hair on my body rose. There, among the crowd, were those pointy white ears and glistening black eyes in close pursuit. I pushed forward, faster through the thousands that congested the avenue. 
The illuminated numbers and letters of the subway stop slowly approached as I stumbled and tripped, trying to escape from the quickly approaching figure. My heart pounded. They seemed to be getting closer despite my efforts to push through. I abandoned my manners and any veil of decency when I turned and saw that costumed mascot just a few meters behind me. I clipped a businessman and apologized to his curses as I raced into the tiled stairwell down into the subway. The strange Hello Kitty slowed and turned at the top of the stairs towards me. I looked around at the rushing commuters in desperation. Help! I shouted only to receive wary glances dismissing me as just another crazy person. I prayed police officers would be monitoring the station as I raced down the steps on shaky legs. But as I descended into the balmy subterranean station, I saw only impatient passers-by, eager to avoid drama and get to their dinners, dates, and apartments without any hiccups. I sprinted down the stairs of the station towards the signs for the yellow line. I looked back and that costumed cat was still following me. I rounded a corner, then skipped down two sets of stairs at a time. By the time I reached the platform, I was out of breath and absolutely exhausted. I leaned against a green pillar blackened by years of grime and watched the stairs as my heart pounded in my ribs. After a few minutes, I saw the cylindrical legs that bent like they were filled with meat, slowly descending towards me. I looked around on the platform and realized I was alone, except for that approaching, costumed character. Back off! But they kept approaching, slow and deliberate, as if savoring the terror of my wide and worried eyes. They were meters away the jaw clicking audibly beneath the thin skin of fabric that covered whatever could possibly fill the enormous mask. Please, leave me alone! It continued to approach. And then I saw translucent lids flick down over the oversized eyes. I tried to scream, but my voice froze in my throat. The rumble of the arriving train finally grew louder. And as it screeched its brakes to a stop, I looked away only for a second. When I looked back to the stairs, they were gone, replaced by the milling sea of commuters squeezing down the crowded stairs. I spent the remaining subway ride looking over my shoulder, trying desperately to calm myself down but they were not on the train. Upon racing back to my apartment, I emailed my employer a fictitious excuse about a medical procedure and explained I needed to work from home that week. And he agreed. I stayed in the house and ordered delivery, too afraid to go outside. I kept replaying the events over and over, knowing just how impossible it all seemed. In retrospect... It began to feel like some crazy dream. After a few days of cabin fever, I began to wonder if I had been overly paranoid and had misinterpreted what I'd seen. I soon got my answer. 
I was unwinding as best I could with some TV before remembering it was trash day. I paused the show and slipped on my jacket, grabbed the stinking bags from the kitchen and shuffled down the stairs. I breathed in deep, enjoying the fresh spring air I'd been missing. The trash area for our apartment is down a little gap between buildings. Nothing there aside from a few rusty bikes and the bins. I walked in and dumped the heavy bags in the plastic container. I turned around and froze in abject horror. It was that costumed character, stained and misshapen, blocking the only way out. The large, inhuman eyes stared intently. The large, knuckled fingers twitched at its sides. I was completely trapped in that narrow gap and felt I might collapse from a heart attack as the tall figure staggered towards me. I could even see the twitch in the cheek of its costumed head. The jittery gloved hands moved eagerly in anticipation as it closed in. What do you want from me? I felt the tears coming as my heart pounded against my ribcage. Those enormous black eyes were then wiped clean by foggy membranes of eyelids. Those gnarled, gloved fingers then extended a small cloth bag towards me. Smeared in what looked to be blood was the word tips. I reached in my pocket with a shaky hand and grabbed a few bills, not even caring about the denomination. The impossibly large eyes blinked again as they watched me drop a 20 and a $5 bill into the bag. A trickling rust-colored liquid drizzled down the base of the mask. Its head then leaned in closer just inches from mine. I could smell a putrid blend of ammonia and rot. With a large hand, it then lifted its mask up just a sliver. The white fabric was peeled up slightly to reveal dozens of long, thin teeth spilling over each other like porcupine quills sprouting from the black speckled gums of a massive mouth. The surrounding skin was loose and textured with deep wrinkles, thin enough to reveal winding blue veins just beneath. It looked like what I could best describe as the loose, bunched skin of a naked mole rat. The head was enormous, taking up the entirety of the mask, which was just as thin as it had appeared to be. I remember leaning to the side as the world dimmed just before I passed out. I was only woken when a neighbor from my building spotted me on the ground by the trash containers. This week, I had to quit via email, unable to face the possibility of running into that thing in the mask again. I avoid Times Square at all costs and advise you to do the same. If you do find yourself near Broadway, stay far away from any abnormal-looking costumed characters. Do not make eye contact. If you do, I strongly suggest you leave a tip.
We've spoken before about the joy of buying your first home, especially if it's a fixer-upper. And it's exciting even if it's a ramshackle place out in the forest with nobody around for miles and a sinister aura that you can't quite explain. But in this tale, shared with us by author Christian Coupland, that's exactly what this young couple are faced with. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson and Nicole Goodnight. So research properties before you buy, and if it's too late, then investigate the strange goings-on. Try to get to the bottom of it before you discover that the woods take back. The house was beautiful. It was this big old tumble-down manor, tucked away at the end of a long drive, surrounded on three sides by lush, undisturbed woodland. It sat just a mile or so outside town, perfectly situated so that we would have peace and quiet without being isolated. And, more than any of those things, it was cheap. My girlfriend and I had been house hunting for far too long by that stage. We both had some money from our folks, but it wasn't much. Most places we looked at were tiny apartments crammed in above liquor shops in the bad part of town. This neglected old pile was stunning by comparison. Yeah, it needed some work, but we could handle that, we figured. And so we did it. We bought the place. It wasn't until the sale was done that Gloria discovered why it was so cheap. She worked at a bar in town, and one of her older co-workers knew all about the place. He told me a family used to live out there. They had a kid. A little boy. Just a nice, normal family. And then one day... Well, the kid went missing. Missing? Was he kidnapped? No, it's weirder than that. The parents called the cops, of course, and they came out with dogs and everything. They found a scent trail and some footprints going off from the yard into the woods. They were the kids' prints. They went about a mile into the forest, a dead straight line. And then, then they just stopped. There was nothing after that. I grimaced. Did they ever find him? No. They looked. For years and years they kept on searching, but they never found a trace of him again. It was horrendous. The parents moved out, of course, couldn't stand being in that place without their boy, and nobody wanted to buy the house after that. It was a pretty sobering story, and I could tell Gloria was upset, but we didn't talk about it much more after that. See, we're both very logical people. We don't go in for superstition or anything like that. Just because something bad happened one time didn't mean nobody should ever live in the house and be happy there again. That was what I firmly believed, and at the time, I thought my girlfriend did too. Looking back at what happened when we moved in, I guess I was wrong. I guess it did kind of get to her. We moved in as soon as we could. We had been together a couple of years by that point, and we were crazy keen to move in, to start our life together. And so, just as soon as there was power and running water back to the old manor house, we packed our belongings into a truck and moved on in. It was going to take a whole lot of work to fix up the place, that was for sure. 
The ceilings were falling in, and the walls were covered in musty brown peeling paper. It smelled of rot and damp, and sometimes it seemed like every single door and floorboard creaked. But we didn't care. It was our place. We owned it together, and we loved every inch of it. We were determined to make a life for ourselves there, no matter how much work it took. So we threw ourselves into painting, stripping, sanding down, fixing, oiling, scraping, and replacing. And at first, we were pretty happy. The house was quiet and gorgeous, and we were in love. I still remember some of the long days we would spend working away at the house before falling exhausted together onto an air mattress we'd set up in one of the downstairs rooms. We were living in a ruin, but we were content. But it wasn't long before the problems started. It was small stuff at first. We would leave things out in the yard, tools or boards or things, and by the next morning they would be scattered all over the grass, all the way up to the ditch that separated the property from the forest. One time we came down in the morning to find a series of long scratches carved into the paintwork of our cars. Then... There were the squirrels, three of them, which we found arranged on the lawn in a perfect triangle, completely eviscerated. Their pale, furry bellies had been slit open and gaped like raw mouths. Their guts were gone. They were hollowed out as though by a hungry bird. So that's what we concluded it must have been in the end. We buried them at the bottom of the garden and neither me nor my girlfriend made anything of the way they had been arranged. So perfectly. So deliberately. Birds didn't lay out their food like that. But neither of us wanted to think about what else it could be. The next morning, I had the day off, but my Gloria had to work. That's why I was the one to find the bodies. They had been dug up from the shallow grave we'd made and left in a messy heap right outside the back door of the house. Standing there, staring at their soil-caked fur, I couldn't help but feel faintly sick. I went to fetch a garbage bag to throw them out once and for all, but by the time I returned to the back door, the squirrels were gone. There wasn't the slightest trace of them. I stood there with the garbage bag in hand, half convinced that I had imagined the whole thing. I didn't tell my girlfriend... I didn't want her thinking I was getting spooked. I was definitely more used to living in a big city, and she teased me fairly often, saying that I wouldn't be able to handle the quiet out in the woods, that it would drive me loopy. And so I didn't tell her. She came home from work that evening, and we stripped some more wallpaper, and listened to music, and ate dinner together, and fell into bed. I don't know what it was that woke me a couple hours later. Perhaps I just sensed something was wrong. But I came awake sharply, suddenly, and found that I was alone in the room. We were sleeping at the back of the house, in one of the least damp rooms we could find. Most of our stuff was stacked up in boxes in other rooms, but we'd put down an air mattress to sleep on, and brought in a couple of bags of our clothes and most important things. My first thought on finding myself alone was that Gloria had gone to the bathroom. But that couldn't be right because 
I could see the door to the bathroom from where I lay, and it was open, and the room beyond was completely dark. Perhaps she had gone to the kitchen to get some water? Somehow, something deep within me knew something was wrong. I sat bolt upright in bed. It's the funniest thing, but I didn't want to speak. I was sure that if I did, something would hear me. And I really didn't want to be heard. My heart was absolutely pounding, as if I'd just woken from a nightmare. I slipped out of bed, my bare feet on the bare boards, and crept through the next room without turning on the light. I felt the breeze just a moment or two before I saw her. The room backed onto the yard, and I could see that the door which led out there was very slightly ajar. Beyond, illuminated by pale moonlight, was Gloria. She stood about twenty steps away, but back to the house, staring out into the woods. Her arms were loose at her sides, and she was dressed only in the shorts and the t-shirt she wore to bed. I could see perfectly clearly in the moonlight, but all the same, I hesitated before calling her name. Something was wrong. Something bad. I could sense that very strongly, and the last thing I wanted to do was make a noise and draw attention to myself. Truth be told, what I wanted to do was run right back to bed and hide under the covers. But I couldn't do that. My girlfriend was out in the yard, and... I needed to find out why. I moved to the door and opened it a little wider. But I stopped before stepping out onto the grass. I'm not gonna lie. I was scared. But the worst thing was that I didn't know what I was scared of. I could feel something watching me. Something bad, something malevolent and it stopped me in my tracks. At that moment, there was movement out in the yard. I looked just in time to see something disappear into the woods. It happened so quickly that I couldn't make out exactly what it was, only that it was a large, hunched shape which folded itself away into the shadows of the trees quicker than I could blink. Reflexively, I jerked back from the door and yelled in shock. (gasps) That was what seemed to break the spell. Gloria, who had been standing quite still in the yard, turned on her heel. I watched as an expression of confusion flitted across her face, and she fell to her knees on the grass. I managed to get it together enough to run out there, put my arm around her shoulders and help her back to the house. It wasn't easy, though. As I was half carrying her across the grass, the urge to look back towards the edge of the forest was overwhelming. In that moment... I was utterly sure that something was standing there, watching me. I had no idea what it might be. I got Gloria back inside and locked the door. She seemed confused. Wait, what happened? The last thing I remember, I was in bed with you. I was reading. What on earth? You must have been sleepwalking. For a moment, I wavered wanting to tell her about the shape I had seen disappearing into the woods. But I didn't. I was scared and I couldn't bring myself to say it. Saying it would make it real. Would make it part of the world and not part of some 
imagined nightmare. We went back to bed that night. I didn't sleep. In the morning, we talked over it again in the pale light of day. She had never sleepwalked before, and she figured it must be down to stress. Working on the house while also working her job in town was taking its toll. Perhaps she should take a few days off and just focus on the house. That's what she wanted to do. I'm sure once we've got this place all set up, I'll feel a lot better. And so that's what she did. I took some time off too. We would spend the days together, slowly and patiently working on the house, eating good food and trying not to be too stressed about anything. That was the plan at least. And when we talked it over that morning, it sounded like a good one. But that's not how things worked out. From the moment we got up that first morning of working exclusively on the house, I could tell something was wrong. Gloria seemed off, distracted. As we stripped away the old flaking pane or pulled up ancient scraps of dusty carpet, I'd often catch her staring off into the distance out of a window towards the woods that bordered the house. And although we had talked about what had happened, I still hadn't mentioned the shape I saw by the edge of the trees. Or how disturbed I was by the thought of her sleepwalking off into the forest. The trees were dense, and the space beneath them dark and alien. You wouldn't have to go very far at all before you were completely lost. Ten steps, perhaps, and then you'd have lost sight of the house. Of everything. And the same density and darkness that made them easy to get lost in of course, also made them perfect for hiding within. As night fell, things were still slightly awkward between us. We weren't talking like we normally did, and Gloria seemed to have something on her mind. We ate dinner in silence. I made a circuit of the house, ensuring that every door and every window was locked. Beyond, at the end of the yard, a slight breeze made the trees hush like they were breathing. We went to bed. We didn't cuddle like we normally did. I was nervous beyond belief, but after an hour or two of jumping at every noise and straining my eyes against the dark, I did manage to fall asleep. When I woke up, my girlfriend was gone. I felt a heavy lump of dread in the pit of my stomach. I didn't want to move, didn't want to face this, but I had to. I was almost certain already of what I was going to find. But all the same, I rolled out of bed, stood, crept into the next room. Sure enough, out there on the grass, illuminated by pale moonlight, was Gloria. She stood with her back to the house, about twenty paces away, facing the impenetrable woods. And she wasn't alone. Next to her was a boy. Maybe 15 or 16 years old. He was short and slight, dressed in rags. His hair was long and wild, his face dirty. He was looking at her, gazing up at her adoringly, and the two of them were holding hands. I felt a thrill of terror go through me as it all came into focus. The family 
that had lived there before. Their missing child who had wandered into the darkness beneath the trees and never returned. The dense woods. The squirrels. Like an offering. A gift or an enticement from someone who had been lonely for too long. As if they sensed me, my girlfriend and the boy both turned to look at me in the exact same moment. Their eyes were wide, white, reflective, gleaming in the moonlight. They looked solemn and alien standing there, the big trees of the forest swaying in the wind behind them. Gloria raised her hand and very slowly, as though unconscious, beckoned to me. There was, there was no way I was going out there. I, I couldn't. I wouldn't. I was, in truth, terrified. Gloria! But I screamed her name. Gloria! Banged on the glass, called to her. Gloria! Impotent. All of it. And while I did so, the kid watched me, his face leering. And I saw that the rags he wore were dark, stained with blood. The teeth in his mouth were wild and snaggled. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Can't you hear me? But she couldn't. She was dead-eyed. Absent. The kid tugged on her arm and she turned as though in a trance. A pair of them started walking towards the woods. I put my hand on the door handle, ready to throw it open and chase after them. But the fear... It was... Paralyzing. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do anything. Except stand there, wrestling hopelessly with the crushing, panicky sensation in my chest. I watched them leave. The boy and my girlfriend. Walking slowly and patiently into the dark mouth of the woods. The boy knew, I think, that I was too scared to follow. The wind rose for a minute. I shivered, alone in the house. And then they were gone, folding into the forest like they were never there. I was on my own. I called the cops, of course, and they came out to search. Brought dogs, tracking specialists. But they never found her. Hundreds of hours of searching, exhaustive questioning, everything. There was one set of footprints leading into the woods, they explained. Only one. It went in a dead straight line for almost a mile before suddenly disappearing. Not a print, nor a mark, nor a broken branch to indicate where she had gone after that. Of course, I couldn't stay in the house after that. I packed up whatever I could carry and fled, leaving it empty and unfinished, rotting away. Soon enough, I'm sure, the woods will take it back as well.
In our final tale, we meet Alan, a small-town sheriff. His beat's normally a quiet one, other than the odd incident here and there. So when Dwight Merklin calls the sheriff out to his place, he's not expecting much. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jackson Robinson, our lawman is met with a sinister surprise. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, Nicole Doolin, Peter Lewis, and Aaron Lillis. So you might not be alarmed by what the sheriff is shown. It's just a child, after all. But it's a child who shouldn't be there. And now he's faced with the resurrection of William Paul. Snow was just beginning to fall by the time I pulled up to Dwight Merklin's house. He had a rickety old two-story just outside of town. I don't know exactly how much land he had, but I know that it was a lot. He was a nice enough guy who had grown up on his father's farm and had taken it over when he came of age. I didn't know a ton about his sister Gwen who lived with him, just that she'd run off to join the clergy at 18 and suffered some sort of mental breakdown. Good morning, Sheriff. Sheriff? Must be really serious. Nobody in town called me Sheriff. Dwight was a mountain of a man. He stood at six foot four, six foot five, and he had a complete head of white hair and a voice that would have made Johnny Cash sound like a soprano. He lit up a cigarette and walked inside. It's in here. I followed him in. The day had been cold and bright, the way that days were in January in North Dakota. The sun would just hang in the middle of the sky and there wouldn't be a cloud for miles. And just when you were thinking that it might be nice enough to actually do something outside for a change, that nasty wind would blow in and cut through whatever poor excuse you had for clothes right down to your bones. Dark didn't even begin to describe the inside of Dwight's home. Despite the abundance of windows, all of which had the blinds pulled, it was dark, the way it is when your eyes are adjusting. That didn't answer the lack of heat. It was near seven below outside, and I swear that Dwight didn't even have his heater on. There's a storm coming in, Alan. A bad one. Well, that'll make that flood we had a couple years back look like child's play. Forecast is sunny the next couple of days. I followed Dwight through his dining room and into a kitchen, which led to a hallway. I thought about the snow that had begun to fall when I got to the house and listened as the house creaked and moaned in the wind. Dwight stopped and looked at me. Weatherman tell you that? Oh, you betcha. <laughs> Weatherman ain't seen the things that I seen today. I didn't say anything to that and followed Dwight through the hallway into the garage. There was a woman sitting on a chair, feeling the head of a child. I recognized the woman immediately. With her unkempt, frizzy gray hair and overly beige outfit, she was unmistakably Gwen Merkland. The child was facing away from me. From the haircut, I assumed it was a boy. I looked to Dwight, and he just shrugged and smoked. Found him out in the pasture. Called you as soon as I got back to the house. Then I called his parents. Jesus Christ. Dwight, who are his parents? I turned the boy around to see his face, and as I did, ice ran through my veins. The boy had blue eyes, the kind of blue that you only hear about in romance novels. He would have been a real killer with the ladies when he grew up, there was no doubt about that. Even his scar seemed manicured, a half-inch opaque nick that cut into his eyebrow. I don't know how he got it, but it seemed like the kind of scar he would be able to brag about well into his later years. 
The fear, if that's what you could call it, that I felt at the sight of him came from the fact that I had seen this boy die. I had been the first on the scene that night. It was a car accident. A drunk driver ran him down. I had been a younger man then. You never recover from seeing a child's dead body. I don't care who you are. I walked out of the garage and into Dwight's kitchen, grabbed a grain belt and downed it in a single pull. It tasted flat and more like water than beer, but I didn't care at the time. Dwight, you tell me right now that's some sort of cruel joke that you're pulling in there. He was standing in the doorway between the kitchen and the hallway, shaking another old gold from his pack. Wish I could say it was. He lit up and tossed me the pack. I took one and lit it. I hadn't had a cigarette in probably six years. The smoke was stale and old. But he's there, clear as day. I ain't said a damn word since I found him, neither. Well, you gotta explain to me who that is, because that sure is- Feel free to have another, Al. You're probably gonna need it. Dwight walked over and opened the door. Tom and Diana Paul looked at me as they greeted Dwight. I could see snow twirling and twisting in the wind behind them. I could barely make out my truck through it all. Dwight led the Pauls into the kitchen, and Tom stopped to ask me what was going on. Maybe this isn't the best thing to show them, Dwight. He kept walking. Diana and Tom stood in the kitchen with me as if I had some sort of answer. Nervously, Tom laughed. <laughs> There's not a body in there, is there, Al? Stay here. I walked into the garage. Dwight stood solemnly where he had when I first came in to see the boy. Gwen was still sitting with him and her lips were moving a mile a minute. I couldn't hear a damn thing she was saying. Dwight, I think we should talk about this before we bring them in. What's there to talk about? He's their son. Dwight, you know as well as I do that... I struggled to find the words for some reason. That their son is dead. Dwight began to say something when I heard Tom speak from behind me. What's going on in here? Now you go on back in- God damn it, Alan, you let them see. I was too late anyway. Diana had cut around me and I heard her gasp and start to cry when she saw the boy's face. Gwen was pushed aside as Diana hugged her son. It was impossible to make out any of the words she said through the sobs. I just threw my hands up in a sign of defeat and went back to the kitchen for another beer. Through the window I could see that the wind had picked up and it was blowing so much snow that I couldn't see five feet from the window. Dwight had been right about the storm after all. He shouldn't be here. Gwen's face looked tight, and her small, thin lips were pressed together tightly. It's not right. The snow gave me an uneasy feeling. I wanted to leave, but it was a full-on blizzard by the time I finally tried. I wasn't certain about what to do procedure-wise, either. They don't exactly teach you how to handle people coming back from the dead at the academy. I pulled my jacket tighter around my body while watching Dwight stoke the fire. The six of us were sitting in his living room. It seemed that the heater had gone out that morning, and the best source of heat we had was the fire. I had taken up residence in a recliner parallel to the couch that the Paul family had claimed. Gwen was on the floor, cross-legged, meditating from the looks of it, and Dwight was in the other recliner when he wasn't poking up the fire. The boy still hadn't said a single word. Tom and Diana had quieted down and were just holding on to the boy as much as they could. My guess was that some sort of shock had set in to help their brains process what they were seeing. To be honest, aside from the occasional crackle from the fire, the entire room was quiet. That's probably why we all heard it so well. 
At first, I pictured a tree scraping up against the side of the house, but the speed and consistency of it was more along the lines of someone keying your car. Us five adults traded glances. Gwen stood up. He is here. Gwen, sweetie. Dwight started to grab a hold of her arms gently. You get those wretched hands off of me. He is here, and he demands respect. We all know what he wants. Her eyes narrowed on the Paul family. And when man's creations fail you, he will come. I don't know how you managed to come back, but you know what he is and what he will do. Gwen. The lights went out. I didn't think the room could get any darker, but when those few lamps went out, the room went black. The fire, of course, put off some light, but not nearly as much as it should have. The darkness was almost palpable, but somehow or another I was able to see those eyes. Those piercing blue eyes seemed to cut through the darkness, and they were staring right at me. Power's out. His voice was so matter-of-fact that I was surprised he didn't snap his fingers to further illustrate his point. <laughs> it's him. Gwen, dear, let's have you arrest. Dwight's massive arms had wrapped around Gwen's tiny frame, and he was gently moving her into another room. Remember, he doesn't need all of us, but he'll take us just the same. I watched their shadows disappear into another room as I tried flicking the lamp closest to me on and off. I thought about how much I really needed to get my eyes checked. I heard the lock turn on the door Dwight had deposited Gwen into before he re-entered the living room. Generator's in the cellar. Is she gonna be all right? She'll be fine. Al, Tom, let's see if we can get that Jenny up and going. This storm could last a while and, well, I'd prefer if I had a little power throughout it. Let's get this done. Dwight led us out into the garage. The chairs where the boy and Gwen had been sitting were still there, and just behind them was a trap door. Dwight lit a cigarette as he searched the workbench for flashlights. He found a few and handed them out. Tom and I lifted the door and shined our lights down there. After a minute or two of silence, I crawled down first, Tom second, and Dwight third. Our three lights together barely penetrated the blackness. It was like walking through smoke almost. It's over here. Dwight gestured to his right and took the lead. Every couple of seconds we heard a loud whack as the wind lifted the outside entrance to the cellar and slammed it back down. After Gwen's speech, I'm sure I wasn't the only one with an eerie feeling in his gut every time that door came back down. My flashlight found an old and weathered Generac. The damn thing looked older than me. Should be some diesel around here somewhere. I saw the striker part on Dwight's lighter in the darkness, then faintly the glow of his cigarette. The three of us began to blindly search through the cellar for a diesel can. Tom was the one who found it. I got some. Here. Dwight and I both turned our lights on him. As we did, the cellar door blew up and whatever it was that was keeping it closed snapped. The door flew open and Tom was left standing on the staircase leading outside. Snow was beginning to blow in from outside. Shut that damn door! Tom turned and walked up the stairs. As he grabbed a hold of the door, something flashed by. I think I only saw its hand that time. It was just a, a, a great blur, and then all that was left of Tom Paul was his neck down. His body stood at the top of the stairs for what could have been an hour if it was a second. Then he fell forward into the cellar, his hand still gripping the cellar door handle. It closed as he fell. I drew my gun and started for the door. 
But before I even got there, something began to pound on it. Dwight and I both grabbed a hold of it to ensure whatever was out there couldn't get in. I know now that it wasn't trying to get in. It was trying to keep us from getting out. There wasn't a drop of blood from Tom's body. It appeared that every vein in Tom's neck had frozen before any blood could escape. We piled a couple of old feed sacks on top of the body, just in case one of the women ended up coming down. I had to stifle a laugh, because for all I knew, Tom might just come back like his boy. Maybe it ran in the family. I tried to regain my composure. Must have been a cougar. The spark and flame from Dwight's lighter revealed his face. That wasn't no damn cougar, and you know it, Alan. A part of me did know, and the other didn't want to believe. What are we going to tell Diana? I'm sure you'll think of something. I filled and started the generator in a daze. The lights came back on, and once again did very little to dampen the darkness. I wanted to point it out to Dwight, but I didn't want to sound crazy. Plus, I had just witnessed a man I had known since the day he was born get decapitated. Maybe I was going a little crazy. Dwight led the way back to the living room, and we stood in the doorway, staring at Diana and her child. Her arms were wrapped around him the way a mother's arms just naturally seemed to fall. Her hand was gently stroking the boy's hair, and I don't think that she'd managed to stop crying completely since she'd seen him. Dwight and I exchanged looks. Uh, Diana, I need to talk to you for a minute, in private. She looked at me, confused. Okay. Dwight traded places with her on the couch and tried to talk with the boy. Diana followed me into the kitchen. I couldn't look at her eyes. I never could when I was telling someone a loved one had died. And my lack of an explanation only made it harder. Listen, Diana. I started to rub the back of my neck and stare at the floor. There was uh, an accident. I looked up and watched her face shift from concern to confusion to grief and tears began to well up in her eyes. There was uh, some sort of animal outside, and it attacked Tom, and I'm afraid that he didn't make it. There was nothing we could do. Diana's body hitched at the waist, and her back began to heave up and down with sobs. I placed a hand on her back gently, and she stood and hugged me. Her hot, salty tears were the first warm thing that I had felt since I set foot in Dwight's house. She squeezed my body tightly, and I squeezed back. For a moment, there was silence. There was no wind, no sobs coming from Diana. Absolute silence, except for a low, long scratch running along the house. My mind conjured up the image of Tom's death, and I imagined a giant cougar scraping the side of the house with paws the size of frying pans and razor-sharp claws. Alan, what was that? Diana had released from our hug and was backed into the far corner of the dining room. It was the furthest point from the sound in the house. Walking into the living room, I saw that Dwight was already fiddling with the lock on the bedroom that he had put Gwen in. The door unlocked, and as Dwight pushed it open, that god-awful North Dakota wind rushed into the room. Bits of snow and ice wafted into my face from the bedroom as I ran to it. Dwight had already begun attempting to soothe Gwen by the time I got to the doorway. I glanced around the room. The window had been shattered and snow was pouring in. Light from outside was reflecting off chunks of broken glass scattered about the room. The ringing in my ears was drowning Gwen out. On the floor there lay what at first I thought was a volleyball, a slightly deflated volleyball, 
but my eyes adjusted and I saw that it was Tom Paul's head. His mouth had been contorted into the shape of a scream. The thought that he had tried to scream after his head became detached was starting to form in my brain. Alan, for the love of God, give me a hand here. The ringing stopped and I turned to see Dwight helplessly trying to subdue his flailing sister. There was a large smear of blood on her chin with rivers of it running down both of her arms from her wrists. I cursed loudly and jumped on the bed. I pinned Gwen's legs down with my knees and grabbed each of her bloody wrists, pushing them onto the bed. Dwight stumbled back. She had scratched him across the face and blood was starting to trickle down from the wound. For a moment, Dwight stood as if waiting for instructions. Get something to stop the blood! Dwight left the room and returned with the first aid kit in an orange pill bottle. He dropped the first aid kit by Gwen's squirming body and began to fuss with the cap on the bottle. It's here. He sees us. He watches us. He's coming. God save us. He is coming. Take these, sweetheart. Dwight held his hand up to Gwen's mouth, and she closed it, the way a child who doesn't want to eat any vegetables would do. Gwen, please, take your pills. My voice was anything but calm with her writhing underneath me like Reagan in The Exorcist. Her mouth opened for breath, and Dwight dropped the pills in. Her face twisted in disgust. Gwyneth Merkland, you swallow those goddamn pills! Dwight cupped his massive hand over her mouth until I told him to stop. I didn't want her to suffocate, and I could already see something kick in. Whether it was lack of oxygen or the pills, I could see it. Help me get her into the living room, near the fire, to warm up. I backed up to grab a hold of her feet. Dwight grabbed her by the shoulders and we lifted her from the bed. I nearly tripped over the boy in the doorway. Gwen's words rang out in my head. He sees us. I lit another one of Dwight's stale cigarettes. It was 7 p.m. and the snow hadn't even begun to let up. It was now almost completely black outside. I had been there 11 hours waiting for that storm to blow over. We fixed up Gwen in the kitchen in an attempt to keep her away from Diana's boy. The cuts on her wrist were shallow. She had bitten into them for some reason I didn't understand, but she hadn't managed to hit any veins, so they sealed up pretty quick. The pills Dwight had given her were Valium, and once they took effect, she calmed down rather quick. I tried to radio for an ambulance a few times, but had no luck. And whenever I thought I had enough courage to try for my truck, I would hear that scraping sound again. So the five of us congregated in the living room by the fire. Dwight kept it well fed, but it put off almost no heat. Did you ever hear the story about why she got locked up in that hospital? I shook my head. He looked over at Gwen. Her eyes were clearly heavy and it was taking just about everything she had to keep them open. She left the farm for the church when she was 18. She loved it. She would write us constantly telling us about it. Then sometime around her 19th birthday, she calls me up on the telephone. She tells me she needs my help and that I need to send her. Dwight looked around the ceiling as if he would see his answer up there. I don't remember. Let's just say a hundred dollars and she begs me not to tell no one. I think on it for a while and figure she's in the clergy. How bad of trouble could it be? So I sent it to her. Dwight paused to light another cigarette. Anyways, she starts writing about these visions that she's having. Visions about death. You know, like the Reaper. Trying to get her and drag her down to hell. She said that hell was actually cold, and the deeper you went, the colder it got. These went on for a while, see. 
and I did my best to hide it from our folks. But eventually, they got a hold of one of her letters before I could, and... <laughs> well, that's when we locked her up. Doctor said it looked like she had an abortion recently. They theorized that was what caused her break. Look, man, that must have been terrible. The only reason I bring it up, Alan, is because it wasn't just letters. She'd paint these awful pictures, too. And they all had one thing in common. Do you know what that was, Alan? I shook my head no. They all had these crystal blue eyes. I'll never forget them eyes. Dwight nodded in the boy's direction. I glanced over my shoulder at Diana and her boy. Gwen had started to mumble something on a loop, but I wasn't listening to her, though. I was staring at that boy's eyes. They shone through the blackness. The sound came from above us. Diana awoke with a yelp, and Gwen started to mumble her nonsense louder. Dwight moved to comfort her when... My hand unsnapped the gun on my waist. Dwight, shut her up! Diana and the boy had taken cover behind me. I saw a silver flash of light before hearing something stick into the side of Dwight's neck. He gasped, and Gwen stood up, pushing his collapsing body out of her way. She began to sprint at me, but was cut short by the thunder crack of my handgun. Complete silence filled the room before a soft ring took over my ears. The bullet struck Gwen in the sternum. She wheezed, and a small smile crept across her face. Blood had begun to pool in her mouth and spill out the sides. She collapsed before she was able to say anything. I went to her, kicking the kitchen knife from her hand as I walked. She was dead. I went to Dwight. He was laying on the floor and blood was pooling around him. I crouched beside him and lifted his head into my lap. Blood was gushing out of the wound in his neck, and for the first time that day, I saw fear in his eyes. You're gonna be okay, big guy. I don't know why I was talking to him like a child, it just sort of happened. He coughed, and a bubble of blood formed and popped around his lips. He tried again. Give me a cigarette. <laughs> sure. For a second, everything was okay. Dwight was going to stand up and light a cigarette like nothing had happened. Gwen was going to get up too, and she was going to walk outside and get Tom and tell me this was all a prank. I shook an old gold loose from Dwight's pack and put it in his mouth as I fumbled with his lighter. Dwight bit down on it. You know, Alan, <laughs> I don't drink much these days. Not since the accident. <laughs> don't talk so much. The flame caught, singeing the top of his cigarette, but it was no use anymore, because Dwight Merkland was dead. I, I'm so sorry, Alan. Diana had collapsed to her knees sometime in all the commotion, and her boy stood up stiff as a board behind her, his eyes peering over Diana's head. I mumbled a request for an ambulance into my radio and checked myself for service. Nothing. Take your boy into the kitchen. He doesn't need to see any more of this. I waited for them to leave, then smoked another stale cigarette before I hooked my arms under Dwight's shoulders. I had no idea how heavy he was going to be, and I felt the strain in my lumbar when I started to drag his corpse across the living room. The temperature dropped 10 degrees when I opened the bedroom door, and I was able to see how dark it could get without the fire. With a great deal of effort, I was able to lift Dwight onto the bed. The cold from the broken window would slow the decomposition, and when the storm broke, if it ever broke, 
I'd be able to get all three of them out of there. I mumbled a prayer, and before I could leave, I heard it. I turned quickly as I pulled my gun from its holster, but a pale hand grabbed it by the barrel and snapped it in two before I could even manage to get a shot off. Veins of ice shot through what remained of my gun and burned my hand. The pistol shattered when it hit the floor. Another hand came out of the dark in front of me and grabbed me by the shoulder. I heard the leather of my jacket freeze around the hand, and I watched the darkness lift to reveal a creature that I still see in my dreams today. It was tall, seven feet at least, with long, thin arms that went all the way to the floor. It stood on two short and stubby legs that looked to be nothing but muscle. It wore no clothes and had no hair. It was just pinkish-white skin that made me think of someone's lips in the cold. Its head was humanish, but there were two caved-in holes that should have been eyes and a vertical line that ran from its forehead to its chin. The line opened as it spoke. I didn't understand the language. The only word I was able to pick out was a name. Diana. Those holes where the eyes should have been seemed to stare at me. In that moment, I understood. Or at least, halfways understood. Sound returned to the room and the creature backed up to the window. I watched it crawl out, smacking its tail on the top of the sill. I stormed into the dining room. The boy watched me as I grabbed Diana and drug her through the living room past Gwen's body and up to the fireplace. I crouched to her level and grabbed a handful of hair. I held her face close enough to the flame to feel the heat, but not enough to burn. What did you do? The anger in my voice scared me. Tell me what you did, now! Sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't think it would work. (laughs) What did you do? I didn't know it would work. She jerked and my hand let go of her hair. She found Dwight's fire stoker and swung it like a baseball bat. It hit me on the shoulder and I stumbled back across the room with pain coursing through my arm. The darkness seemed to spill in from the bedroom. I had left the door open. The fire died and Diana and I were left in blackness. Unnatural, palpable blackness. I didn't know if she could hear the scraping that was slowly inching toward us from the bedroom. You would have done the same thing, Alan, had you known about it. I heard her stepping around but couldn't place where she was going. We found a book, Tom and I did. And after we lost Billy, we tried everything. We tried church, therapy, drugs, everything. She stepped around, heading towards the dining room, I think. It was hard to tell. The footsteps echoed like we were in a cave. A man came to us with a book and said that he could bring back Billy. Tom refused to believe him, but... As time went on, he became just as desperate as I was and called him. He brought us the book and showed us the spell. We offered him money, but all he told us was to follow the spell to the letter. We followed as much of the spell as we could, but we just didn't have it in us to kill anyone. So we stopped Alan, and I swear to God, I thought it was over. But then Dwight called us, and it looked like everything had worked. I heard the fire poker drop. I'm sorry you had to see all of this, Alan. I don't know what that thing out there is, but Billy and I are leaving now. The door opened. (coughs) I 
lay there in the darkness until the storm broke and sun crept in through the window and warmed my face. When I stood up, I saw the boy, William Paul, sleeping in the corner. There was something so childish about him. I went to him. He looked up at me with confused, brown eyes. It's over. The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.